Well, good morning. Great to see you. Jake was right. You really do look good. You look good this morning. Um, and if, you, if you're visiting and you don't know what's going on here, these are not people leaving our church, I think. I think. Uh, but these are uh, preschool-aged children going to children's church. So if you have a child that age and you'd like them to try that, participate, you're welcome to. Also, sometimes we think everyone knows this because we're used to it, but there's child care available on the other side of this building. So if you have a young child and uh, would like them to be there this morning, you're welcome to avail yourself of that. Um, as we like to say from time to time, if you have a young child here and you feel like they have become distracting to you or to others around you, and if you take them out, we will never stop you. <laughs> Just FYI. Well, you know what we're celebrating this morning, and uh, it's really great to think about that Christians are doing this all over the world in places that are just look different and feel different, and people dress differently and they worship differently, that, that people are celebrating the resurrection all over the world. And, the, you know, the reason that we are meeting on the first day of the week instead of our, our Sabbath being the seventh day of the week, that's a celebration of the resurrection that occurred on the first day of the week, and that's, that's why the calendar changed in that way for believers in Jesus. So we're celebrating this all the time, but it's appropriate to really give this special honor and thought and meditation uh, on, on this time once a year. So we're going to be back in the book of Acts. If, if you're visiting, again, I do want to say welcome. We've been studying through the book of Acts. That's the fifth book in the New Testament. You get the four Gospels. You may, may have heard of those, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then Acts. And it really, it's a bridge between the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament because it really shows you how this news about Jesus of Nazareth went from being a very local Judean thing, mostly around Jerusalem, to going into all these different parts of the world. The rest of the New Testament is largely letters to other parts of the world. So Acts kind of shows you how that happened. I want to look in Acts chapter 13, and uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can just follow there in the bulletin. My sons were downtown yesterday with their cousin, and they came home and said, there was, a, there was a protest downtown, and they didn't really know what it was about. They just saw some kind of rally or protest, and I feel like we're seeing more of those in Greenville, and definitely see those in the news a lot. I don't know if you've ever seen this in the news where a journalist will, will go to a protest or a rally and will just kind of randomly come up to somebody and interview them about all right, so what, what are you here protesting or rallying about? And they'll tell you the cause. And they'll say, now, why is that important to you? Or what do you believe about that? Or, or why are you so upset about that? And sometimes when a journalist asks that question, the, the person who responds, they know exactly why they're there. They're, they're, you know, very articulate. They have a good grasp of the issues. But a lot of times, you know, a journalist will put their microphone in somebody's face and, and they are just dialed up and they've got signs and they're painted up and they're wearing stuff. And they kind of have no idea why they're there. And on both sides of the issues. And I sort of wonder, just for equal time, like what would happen if a journalist had been out in front of DPC this morning? You know, and, and so as we're walking in, if he or she had said, so, all right, so this is obviously sort of a special Sunday for this, this community. Why is that? And I think most people here could say, well, we're celebrating. This is a special celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, so then what, what if he or she put the microphone back to you and said, yeah, now, and, now, and why is that important to you? What would you, like, what would you say? Would you, I think most of us would feel stumped. 
And maybe we would just say, well, I bet you can't rise from the dead, which is probably not the best comeback to the reporter, you know, at that point. Not the most substantive reason to gather this morning. And I, what I'd like to do is just sort of give you what I'm calling just Easter 101. And, you know, we've got a mixed bag in here. And I, I just want you to know, if you're visiting, I, I try never to make assumptions about what you believe or that you believe in Jesus. I think the normal Sunday for DPC is that we have Christians and those who are not Christians in this room together. And, and I want to talk with both of you. But I want you to think about, like, wh- why is this such a big deal? I think sometimes even people who've been in the church for years who would say, okay, like, I believe it, okay? I be- I'm, not, I'm not antagonistic to this stuff. I do believe it just still don't know why is this such a huge deal? Why is Easter regarded as the high watermark of the Christian year? Why? Not just that it is. Why? And what I want to use is, is, uh, is this passage. The book of Acts is full of, well, it's full of a lot of things. It's full of speeches. There's lots of speeches in the book of Acts. And it's full of travel. And you get both of those in this passage. This is the Apostle Paul's first, what people would call a missionary journey. He has companions with him. But Paul, this is the Paul that wrote a lot of the letters of the New Testament. Paul and his companions are on a missionary journey to tell people about Jesus. And what you get here, you could call it a sermon, you could call it a speech. It's in a synagogue. But I want you to look at how he he keeps talking about the resurrection. And I want to use this as a way of asking the question, why? Why is it so uniquely important? Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem, but they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. Verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, To us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. 
Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that we get to do what we're doing. Uh, Thank you for this spot on the corner of West Washington and Broad to gather uh, safely and comfortably and to name this name and hear these words and sing these truths and see one another do it, to hear your word gather around this table. Lord, please use this in our hearts, but we pray that this would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. Would you open up our ears this morning? Open up our hearts? Open up the real us to you? And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. A few years ago, I saw a piece online, a news article online, it's on CNN.com, and it's written by a guy named Ron Clark. It's a teacher, and apparently a very capable educator, has won some awards and been recognized for his um, accomplishments in education. He wrote a piece on CNN.com, and the name of the article was, What Teachers Really Want to Tell Parents. And automatically, everyone involved in the school system just perked up and wants to hear what I'm going to say next. What Teachers Really Want to Tell Parents. Here's an excerpt. He says, At times when I tell parents that their child has been a behavior problem, I can almost see the hairs rise on their backs. They are ready to fight and defend their child, and it is exhausting. One of my biggest pet peeves is when I tell a mom something her son did. Can you believe that he assumed that it was a son? That's very offensive to me. One of my biggest pet peeves is when I tell a mom something her son did, and she turns, looks at him, and asks... Is that true? Well, of course it's true. I just told you. And please don't ask whether a classmate can confirm what happened or whether another teacher might have been present. It only demeans teachers and weakens the partnership between teacher and parent. I'm surprised I didn't get an amen from one of the educators in the, in the room. But, but, you know, you think about that. He's making a great point that a, a, a teacher in the classroom isn't just one thing. A teacher is many things. In other words, like a teacher is not just a dispenser 
of the information, although he or she does do that. But a teacher is an eyewitness of how the child acts and performs in that classroom. And, you know, even uh, building off what he said, like if you had, let's say, another teacher there, or let's say you had that teacher and another teacher and a parent volunteer helper, and they all witness to the same thing, that's a strong witness of what the child is really like, what's really happening. I, I, want you, I want you to use that mental picture and think about the word witness. Sometimes Christians use that word about Christians as a noun. Sometimes Christians use that word as a verb. And in kind of Christian lingo, what that can sound like is if you witness to somebody, you tell them about Christianity. But actually in the New Testament, it's, it's something of a technical term. To be a witness is not just to be a Christian. It's to be an eyewitness. It's someone who's an eyewitness who is there, who can give you a truthful account of what they saw. You're going to hear that word again in this passage. That the reason that people like Paul, Paul was an apostle. The reason that men like Paul and these other apostles and people who weren't apostles who traveled with them, normal people who did this, just in their workaday life, the reason that they're called witnesses is that they're saying, I'm not just telling you like an ideology that I like and I want to see if it works for you. This works for me, I want to see if it works for you. They're saying, I'm telling you that I'm an eyewitness to things that because they're true, they change everything. And especially this one thing, if you're an eyewitness to it, and it's the actual physical, bodily, tangible, touchable resurrection of Jesus of, Christ, Jesus of Nazareth after he's killed. So let's look at this. I, I want to think about, if not Easter 101, resurrection 101. So let's think about it in these terms. Resurrection is public. Resurrection is confirmation. And resurrection is good news. That's what I want to unpack this morning. Resurrection is public. Resurrection is confirmation. And resurrection is good news. And first off, and this is just building off what I've already said, resurrection is public. Look at what he says, what Paul says in verses 30 and 31. He says, but God raised him, Jesus, from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his, what? His witnesses to the people. Let me read you something else that Paul wrote in another place in the New Testament. This is in another, it's, it's a, one of the letters that Paul wrote to another church in another area. This is in 1 Corinthians. Listen to what he says, because you may never have heard this. He writes to these Christians, he says, like, when I was with you, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, so he's actually really dead, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And, and get this. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep is a euphemism for they've died. And this is a pretty full house that we've got in here this morning. This is not a group of 500 people, just under. 
Paul says that he knew of at least one occasion, one of many occasions, that when Jesus was raised from the dead, he appeared to more than 500 people at one time. That's a critical mass of eyewitnesses. Now, why is that important? Um, Almost seven years ago, I had the privilege of being part of a dedication service at the the, the closest public school to where we're sitting, A.J. Wittenberg, uh, I guess the newest downtown school in years and years, just down the street, elementary school. And it was a dedication of a portrait by a local artist of the namesake of the school, A.J. Wittenberg, who was an educator. And one of the people who was present was his daughter, who's now an older woman. Now, I, don't, I can't remember her married name, but Elaine Wittenberg. So I had the privilege to say a few words at, at, at this event, and I, I brought with me a history of Greenville, South Carolina. And I opened it to a passage about the 60s. I didn't bring it with me because it's such a big book, but, but here's what I read while we were together. This is from this book about Greenville. And it's talking about when the schools integrated in 1964. This historian writes, The schools opened peacefully on September 1st, 1964, though law enforcement officials stood by for several days. The African-American students were constantly harassed and consequently kept to themselves. Elaine Wittenberg's life was threatened repeatedly, and an FBI agent was assigned to protect her. Now, what if I had read that, and what if I had said... But obviously this reflects the sort of skewed opinion of this historian. We have no actual proof that this actually happened. I mean, besides all the ways and all the reasons that that would be inappropriate, the reason it would be factually untrue is that Elaine Wittenberg was sitting in front of me. Like, she's an eyewitness to this historical account that I'm reading. She knows it's not myth. She saw it. She's a witness. The reason it's such a big deal in the New Testament that there are witnesses to the resurrection is that it's not just one individual over here or one individual over here. It's a critical mass of people saying, this is real. He was brutally killed. And he's alive. And I saw him. It's so important. And now, it may sound like I'm stating the obvious. It's so important to stop and get that point because sometimes the way Christians and even preachers, teachers, the way we talk about resurrection is as if it's a metaphor. You know, like sometimes preachers will say things like, and it's on Easter Sunday that all of us are reminded of the possibility of new beginnings. Okay, that's kind of true. Yeah, there, there is such a thing as new beginnings. I had a great lunch with somebody about a month and a half ago. And it had been a long time since we sat across from each other. And, and all these big things had happened in his life since we last got together. And I think there had been sort of a... We just, we just had not been with each other. And we caught up and we reconnected. I even apologized for some things that I needed to apologize for. And it was just great. And he sent me a really kind of email that afternoon. He said, man, I feel like I experienced some, some resurrection this afternoon. And I know what he meant. Personal renewal, resurrection of our friendship is a metaphor. That is not how the New Testament speaks about resurrection of Jesus. Ever. Literal, visible, public Multiple witnesses, 
tangible, touchable life again of someone brutally killed in an unsurvivable killing. Resurrection is public. All right, now secondly, again, so what? I knew a guy who planted a church. Planted a church in Greenwich Village in New York, and, and one Easter he preached on the resurrection, and this just completely unchurched guy was at the service, came up to him afterward and said, okay, he, he was raised from the dead, so blanking what? Okay, that's when you feel like you've got to connect the dots a little bit more. So let me try to connect the dots a little bit more. It's public, but it's confirmation. Look at what, okay, let's review. Where is this passage taking place? Where is the passage taking place? It's in a synagogue in a city called Antioch. There were multiple Antiochs. We've already studied one a few weeks ago. This is a smaller one in Pisidia. So there's a synagogue there. That's where Paul would always start. Start with people that have some Bible background. What does he say to them? Well, what do they do in the synagogue? Look in verse 15. After the reading from the law and the prophets... If there was one thing that you were going to hear in a Jewish synagogue, you were going to hear the law of Moses read and a reading from the prophets. Maybe other scriptures, but you'd always hear those. So what does Paul do? Look at what he says in verse 27. He says, all right, my brothers, men of Israel, Gentiles who fear God, who are at the synagogue. He says, for those who live in Jerusalem and their, and their rulers, because they did not recognize him... Jesus, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, they fulfilled them by condemning him. And look in verse 29. When they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Now, here's the interesting thing. If Paul had stopped there, it would not have been effective. If, if, if Paul had walked into a synagogue where he didn't really know maybe anybody and said... I want to tell you about a man, and his name is Jesus. He claimed to be the Messiah. He was condemned by the Jewish authorities, and then he was killed. Just like the prophet said, that probably wouldn't have convinced anybody. It'd be like if I stood before you and said, I, Brian Habig, am making a prophecy this morning, and here's my prophecy that will take place before, yea, verily, before the end of this year. On the Saturday before this Christmas, Woodruff Road will be congested with traffic. You'd probably think, that's the worst prophecy I've ever heard. Everyone knows that. That's like prophesying, the sun will set tonight. You know that's going to happen. And again, you may know this, but you may not know this. The New Testament recognizes the fact that other people came along like even in Jesus' day, and claimed to be the Messiah. And they either got killed, or their followers disbanded, or both. So if Paul had just walked in and said, this man named Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, and he was found guilty, and he was executed, just as the prophets say, that wouldn't have convinced anybody. But then what does Paul say? The Scriptures said something else would happen. Maybe, maybe you saw it, maybe you didn't. Again, he's talking to people who grew up with what we call the Old Testament. He says, God promised that he would rise from the dead. Here's one example he gives. He says, in, in the Psalms, what we call Psalm 16, 
David is writing. Famous King David. And he writes, Lord, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. And it sounds like he's writing about himself. And he uses the word corruption. It's what we would call decomposing. Like dying and decomposing. Lord, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. And it sounds like he's writing about his own experience. But then Paul is looking at this Jewish synagogue and he says what? David died. And we all know he died. We know where his tomb is. And we know that his body decomposed. He couldn't have been writing about himself. But what was going on? God worked on David and influenced him and moved him to write about someone greater than himself, actually to write about someone who would be his direct descendant, who would die, who would be his definitive holy one, but not decompose, not see corruption, because he is the Messiah, because he is the Son of God, because he is fully God, And fully man. He's man enough to be killed. But death can't contain him because he is fully God. Man. Now, this is the point. where you've You've got a man standing in a Jewish synagogue. And it's sort of like he's saying, if what I'm saying is true, number one, it will fulfill all these things that we read. Not just a truth claim. A man will fulfill all these things that we talk about in our synagogues. And number two, it will change everything. Everything. Everything about how we worship, it'll change everything. But he's willing to go in there and say it because why? Because it's true. It actually is really powerfully true. And here's the thing. It's sort of a common thing to hear. You'll you'll read this in news pieces. You'll read this in books. Uh, If you're in college or went through college, you you probably heard this coming along, at least if if you're in college from the 90s on, is that all truth claims are socially constructed. There is no absolute truth. All truth claims are socially constructed. All truth claims are sort of ultimately a power grab. The resurrection is God saying to the world, this is not a power grab. And this is not one truth claim competing with all the other truth claims. This is public, real, tangible truth put on a billboard to say, this man is like no other man. This is the confirmation of everything promised in the Scripture. And when somebody comes and talks to you about him, the reason you should listen is not because of the merit of that person or the smarts of that person or the effective communication of that person. It's because of what God has done to say to the world, this is real. I'm confirming it to you. But we've we got to say this last part, because if you stop there, it's kind of like, it's sort of like the Christians then are using the resurrection to sort of spike the ball in the end zone and go, yeah, you know, like, best truth claim ever, best religion ever. I don't think that's where we want to stop. I hope that's not my tone, but I, but I, I think that's why it's so important to go to this last thing, and it's this, that, all right, the resurrection is public, the resurrection is God's confirmation of these claims 
It's good news. The resurrection is good news, and it's good news for anybody. Listen to how, listen to how Paul talks about it. And he's talking, he calls these people brothers. He grew up with a devout Jewish background, not a nominal Jewish background. These are his, his peeps. What does he say? Verse 26, brothers, my brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, those among you who fear God, to us has been sent, what, the ultimate truth claim? The message of this salvation. And then I love this down in verse, uh, verse 32. He says, we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers He means the ancestors of the faith. What God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. All right? It's not, I'm coming coming to you to sort of say, hey, bring on your best philosophical arguments. Just set them up and I'll just knock them down. He's saying this, "I'm, I'm coming into your synagogue because I've got incredible news. What's the news? Why is it so good? Why is it so good for a Jewish synagogue? Look in verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers. Listen to the affection. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. See, here's the thing. Let me just say it again. Paul did not grow up, like, nominally Jewish. He grew up hardcore Jewish. He was, he was what we would call an academician of the law and the prophets. And he walks into this synagogue, and it was probably daunting. He's a real person. It was probably intimidating. But what was he able to say? What, what, what do we believe, my Jewish brothers? What do we believe? What is our ethic? The law of Moses. The law of Moses is the authority. It is the ethic. And what does it say? How much of it do you have to keep? What does the law itself say? The law of Moses says this. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by everything written in the book of the law to perform it. In other words, these are the words that we're to live by. If we live by these words, the way it says to live by them, we'll have eternal life. And how does it say to live by them? Just keep every law perfectly, personally, perpetually, without fail. Anything less than that, and the law says you are under a curse condemnation by God. And he understood that. Like, he knew what it was like to live under that verdict. And he walks into this synagogue and says, what I'm telling you is not just a philosophical truth claim. What I'm saying is, this man that God raised from the dead, He can do what you cannot do for yourself. You cannot obey your way out. You cannot good your way out of your condemnation. And the one man 
that came and kept the Torah, the law of Moses, perfectly was killed, run through a kangaroo court and tortured and killed. And Jews were complicit and Gentiles were complicit. The world turned on him. The most loving man who ever lived. Airtight life. And in so doing, he took the condemnation. He took the punishment that we deserve. And guess what? If you will believe in him, God will give you credit as if you kept the law perfectly. As if you always loved God perfectly. If you always loved the people around you, even your enemies, perfectly, he'll give you credit for that. It's called grace. How does the passage end? Paul told these people who were interested, continue in what? Trying harder? Continue in the grace of God. Now, here's the thing. I'm not standing in a Jewish synagogue. I'm not standing in a room where people know the law of Moses and they're pretty familiar with it. Might know some of it. I doubt anybody here knows all of it. And and to be honest, it might be that you're sitting here going, interesting. But, I mean, I think that I'm a fairly good person. This is where I don't have a lot of time. So let me cut to the chase. Let me give you the bad news. And let me give you the good news. If you're here this morning and you believe yourself to be a good person, someone who doesn't need saving, someone who doesn't need a savior, what has saturated your insides is what the Bible calls pride. Nothing is more destructive to your insides. Nothing is more destructive to the real you than this thing called pride. Take it from a prideful person. And if you feel like you're good, it would be interesting to talk to the other people in your life who are either in counseling or will be down the road talking about you. I'm talking to you. I'm standing up here. I'm talking to you from a level playing field. Every person in here has pride. We think we're better than we are. One Christian said, pride's like your t-shirt. First thing a human being puts off, last thing they take puts on, last thing they take off. It's as if Paul is saying, hey, you know what? You cannot good your way out of that. You can't good your way out of your pride. You might feed it. You can't obey your way out. You can't volunteer your way out. You can't positive your way out. But a man came. Killed publicly. Raised and lived and appeared publicly. And that's God saying, turn to him. Turn to him and believe in him. He will wash your pride away. And he'll even do this. He'll break the power of pride in your life. He'll break the power of it maybe for the first time or he'll keep working on it for people who've been Christians for years and we still fall into it. He makes us clean. He breaks the power of sin. Not because of what we do, but through what he does. 
It is such good news for people like us. The resurrection is public. The resurrection is God confirming everything He had said up to that point and everyone who speaks in His name. But the resurrection is good news for every messed up person in this room. Turn to Jesus and be healed. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, our Father, for sending your own Son and causing him to endure what we deserve and he did not. And raising him in power and glory and exalting him. And giving him to the likes of us so that we can turn to him and find forgiveness, find grace find transformation and renewal. This couldn't come from us, so we say to you, thank you. Thank you, thank you for the risen Lord Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.